I'm JG Michael, and this is Parallax Views. Hello, this is Mike Swanson, and in a few moments, you're going to listen to another segment of Parallax Views. But before you do that, let me tell you about my new book, Why the Vietnam War. It's a sequel to my previous book called The War State, which has lots of positive reviews and Amazon's been out for years. But this one is a more detailed case study of how American Empire National Security State operate using Vietnam. And I believe it shows also how things work today, how policy is actually made and why. So grab the book on Amazon.com, Why the Vietnam War. This episode of Parallax Views is brought to you by the $10 tier and above supporters of Parallax Views on patreon.com slash parallaxviews. And those supporters get a producer's credit shoutout on each and every edition of the show. So producer's credit shoutouts to Mark, Arlen, Spartacus, Gunner, Ed, Gratz, James, Mickey, Brian, The Warner, The 42 Group, Nick, Emilia, Chase, Chris, Ork, Black Tuna, Nathan, David, Holland, Martin, Stu, Jeffrey, Thomas, Elliot, Colin, Michael, Matthew Ho, Brace, Galen, Chance, Justin, Nick W., and The Mere Project, M-E-E-R. Thank you again to all of those $10 tier and above supporters on my Patreon page. You can join them at patreon.com slash parallaxviews. It's those producers credit supporters that can really help this show keep going, and their support is very much appreciated. Hey there, Parallax News listeners. On this belated Veterans Day edition of the program, we're going to be speaking with New York Times best-selling author Bruce Henderson about his new book, Bridge to the Sun, the secret role of the Japanese Americans who fought in the Pacific in World War II. It's a fascinating story, especially when considering Many of these same Japanese Americans who helped the U.S. Army during the war effort had family who were being kept by the U.S. government in internment camps during that time. We'll be covering all that and more in the conversation to follow with Bruce Henderson, author of Bridge to the Sun, The Secret Role of the Japanese Americans who fought in the Pacific in World War II. Welcome to Parallax Views, a guest that I'm very happy to have on and I think is really apropos for Veterans Day. Uh, Bruce Henderson, author of a number of books, uh, including uh, one that I'm a big fan of, uh, and the Sea Will Tell, uh, which uh, he co-wrote with Vincent Bugliosi, and later became a, a rather um, interesting TV movie uh, with, uh, if I remember correctly, James Brolin. Uh, but he's here with us today to talk about his latest book, Bridge to the Sun, the secret role of the Japanese Americans who fought in the Pacific in World War II. How are you doing today, Bruce? 
Good. Thank you, JJ. So if you could, uh, before we get into the subject matter of the book, uh, maybe we could talk a little bit about how you stumbled onto uh, this subject of these Japanese Americans who fought in the Pacific in World War II uh, and, and why maybe this story isn't as well known as it should be. Well, actually, stumbled is a, is a good uh, is a good description. Uh, I was at the archives uh, several years back uh, researching an earlier another book of mine when I uh, first learned about these Japanese American soldiers who were sent into uh, the Pacific during World War II. I knew about the some something like thirty thirty well twenty five thousand Japanese American infantrymen who fought in Europe, uh, Italy, and France during World War II and the 442nd. There have been books and movies about them, and they were a highly decorated unit. Um, but what I did not know was that we had sent uh, the first-generation Japanese-Americans, also known as Nisei. Uh, in other words, they were the offspring of, of Japanese immigrant parents, uh, for the most part, living on the West Coast. Um, that we had sent them into the Pacific uh, in, in the war against Japan. And I made a note at that time to myself that I would circle back on this and take a look at this. And I thought it would be interesting to to delve into their, well, not only the fact that they they were recruited out of, uh, you know, the internment camps where the ethnic Japanese on the West Coast were uh, rounded up and, and placed, um, but that also they were in the Pacific, fighting against their ancestral homeland, at least their parents' homeland, even though they were the Nisei were Americans. And I just thought that would be an interesting story to come back to. And I think, and that started me actually then on a four-year journey, about half of that was conducting research, uh, interviews, and other kind of archival research about, about these soldiers. And I think the reason that and again, I had written World War II books, and I'd even written uh, a couple on the Pacific theater. And the fact that I, I did not know that, you know, Japanese Americans went into that theater during the war. And I think the reason it was secret, uh, certainly during the war, was because we did not want the Japanese army to know that we, the Americans, had these teams of Japanese language experts in theater who could uh, easily uh, interpret and translate captured enemy documents as well as interrogate Japanese prisoners. And the the Japanese army and the Japanese, um, even the Japanese government, they were rather arrogant thinking that their language was so difficult, particularly the, the written language writing and reading it, um, that that Westerners were going to have a very difficult time with it. And therefore, uh, they a lot of their messages on the battlefields in the Pacific were sent open, not coded, uh, certainly in Japanese, but with no effort to really code them because they just felt, you know, no American unit's going to be able to understand what we're saying. So the fact that we had those guys over there, about 3,000 of them, uh, in ten-man military intelligence teams, was held as a military secret during the war. 
So I can understand that, but but why do you think that maybe um, maybe your book is is one of the um, few since then that has really yeah. covered this topic in depth? Do you think there's just I, I mean, do you think prejudices play a role in why uh, we may not hear a lot about this story? Well, again, we've we heard a lot about the story of the Japanese American soldiers who fought in Europe as to why we didn't hear why there there was not really a, a general knowledge of them fighting over in the Pacific. First of all, there were far fewer of them, about 3,000, as opposed to about 25,000 who went to Europe. But beyond that, these guys in, who went to the Pacific were trained by the military intelligence service. And uh, they it was made clear to them, even at the end of the war, when they were discharged, that there were they were subject to the Secrets Act. That you know what they did during the war was still came under military intelligence, and and a lot of these guys, thousands of them, really uh, ended up uh, working in uh, not only war crime trials after the war in the Pacific, but also in Japan for the during the occupation of Japan when we were trying to turn that country into you know into a democracy and of course a strong ally which is what happened. And um, so there were still, you know, there was, they were told that they were not free to talk about a lot of what they did. And the other thing is, I think these, these veterans, you know, when they came back from the war, it wasn't like the typical GI coming back and maybe going down to the veterans hall every Thursday night to have, you know, have a beer with, with other, you know, buddies, GIs, uh, these guys, even though they were American by birth, they were Japanese and they, you know, and we had just fought a war with the Japanese. And so I don't think there was, there were welcome mats out necessarily in, in the veterans organizations and groups. So they didn't become joiners and they also didn't go to reunions because again, they served on small 10-man teams. Uh, it, was, it wasn't like, you know, if they were a member of the 101st Airborne, they would go to 101st Reunion at a big hotel in Cincinnati and, you know, talk about their war exploits and experiences with, uh, you know, fellow soldiers. They didn't do any of that. So, and then also they tended to be kind of humble guys. Uh, in fact, I've had a lot of the families reach out to me that, you know, that to say that I had come up with uh, a m way more information <laughs> about their father or their grandfather or their uncle than they knew, than, than the, you know, they had been told during their lifetime that they had even told their own families. So they didn't go around talking about it. And I think that was also part of it. That's really interesting. So they, they sort of kept their word about not really talking about this uh, that much, in other words. Yeah. And, you know, the World War II stuff, uh, I mean, was not uh, really declassified until uh, a, about 40 years after the war. Um, and so by then, you know, these guys were certainly older. And um, a lot of them, though, went to their grave thinking that they were still subject to the Secrets Act and couldn't tell even, you know, their, their own family about what they had done, which, you know, was really not the case, but they believed it and they were, you know, they didn't want to do anything they shouldn't do. And so I think that's pretty kind of, kind of put a cap on their 
you know, on their history and 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 on what they did. So it was really, I love doing this kind of story. I love telling a big story uh, through the lives of a few who lived it. And, you know, Bridge to the Sun, this is a big story because it's the entire war in the Pacific as seen through these six characters. And I chose these six men to follow. Um, and I, you know, had others that I, that I could have, could have focused on, but I, I, I was looking for coverage in the war. In other words, I didn't want all of them to be at the same place at the same time. I wanted, you know, one to be at Iwo Jima, one to be in Okinawa, one to be in Burma, one in the Philippines. And I wanted that kind of coverage to, to show that, um, the war in that theater and, um, and so, you know, and in fact, the story, the book even starts, uh, at least in, in a short version for each of them in the 30s before the war, how each of them as boys were sent to Japan um, by their by their parents, uh, immigrant parents, Japanese immigrant parents um, to go to school for a year or two or three years to get immersed in the culture and language of, of their ancestral homeland, to meet their relatives, to, you know, and they all, of course, came came back to America before the war started. And they were Americans and, and believed they were Americans. They didn't become converted to, you know, um, um, uh, to, to be an emperor worshipers. They even when they were in Japan, they, you know, they, they, they were Americans and, and they knew that, but they were learning the language and the culture. So when the war broke out and the U.S. Army needed uh, people with the Japanese language skills, these guys were perfect because, you know, they had gone to school there. They knew the language. They could write it. They could read it. They could speak it. Uh, and so they were really valuable. And the irony here, though, JG, is a lot of them, these young men who the army needed, were had already been rounded up and put in the internment camps because, quote, quote, you know, Japanese weren't to be trusted. Uh, although I must say that there was not a single uh, incident of sabotage uh, on the West Coast or anywhere uh, during the war by any uh, Japanese, um, Japanese American or ethnic Japanese um, at all. So, uh, but in any case, these guys had been with their families, rounded up. There were about 120,000 ethnic Japanese who were put in internment camps. And of those, about 60% were American citizens. They were the, the offspring, the Nisei. And so when the army needed these, this kind of language to go, where did they go to recruit it? They walked into the camps, the internment camps, and they said, oh, well, um, yeah, we put you here because we didn't trust you. But you know what? We really need you in this war. Uncle Sam needs you. And so these guys, you know, I mean, they they stepped forward and and they volunteered for, for this. And as I say in the book, they really they really were fighting two wars at the same time. I mean, they were sent into the Pacific to, you know, to fight this country's enemy, Japan. But at the same time, they there was another war going on at home. They knew that once once the war ended, you know, in the Pacific, that they were going to have to go home, come home and try to get their, you know, their parents out of the camps, try to uh, recover some kind of family life, their, if they could, their property. Uh, and it was a war against prejudice 
and and uh, racial discrimination, and and it really was like a second war front for them. If you could, since you mentioned the the internment camps that existed for Japanese Americans in the U.S. at this time, this time period that we're talking about, uh, maybe you could talk a little bit more about that because I have to be honest, I remember uh, back when I was in school. Uh, we maybe covered it briefly when I was in high school in one of my history classes, but I almost feel like it's it's this black mark um, for a lot of people uh, for this country, I think, in a way, the, the internment camps. And I, I think sometimes it gets um, maybe glossed over because of that. Uh, so for people that are unfamiliar uh, with the internment camps, how did they come about? And maybe you could talk about Executive Order 9066. Well, Again, the the internment camps. I mean, what the um, the, the theory was that the, uh, the 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 Japanese who were living in the, in the United States after Pearl Harbor were potentially a security threat. Um, and in a case of Hawaii, I, I should point out, uh, about a third of the population in Hawaii was Japanese or. Uh, Japanese American, and uh, and and there, uh, if they had tried to round them up and put them into into a camp there, uh, you know the entire economy would have would have collapsed in Hawaii, and that would include all kinds of military installations there and everything. So the Japanese, interestingly enough, living in Hawaii, uh, were not subjected to being rounded up and put into camps. But the ethnic Japanese, and I say ethnic Japanese because that included both the immigrants who were here as well as their offspring who were born in America and therefore were natural born American citizens, um, they were a, a, a manageable, I guess, number of them spread out mostly in the Western states and they felt given the government did military did given all of the military installations on the west coast that we couldn't take the chance on on having sabotage so we're going to round these folks up and uh and and move them inland uh into these camps and and these camps that were built by the government were built in some of the most desolate godforsaken places in the desert in arizona in Arkansas, uh, in Utah, I mean, uh, very, very isolated, away from not close to anything, let alone a military installation. And they became, um, you know, a uh, self kind of self-contained prison. And they were they were surrounded in barbed wire, and they had gun towers in them, and there were uh, there were armed soldiers. Uh, in the gun towers, and I have one of the pictures that I found in my research, and I have it in the book, is there's a machine gun in in a gun tower in one of these camps, and and the more I looked at it, then I realized what I was seeing was the machine gun wasn't pointed outward; uh, it was pointed inward toward the camp. In other words, they weren't worried about anybody breaking in, <laughs> but you know about anybody getting out. And again, these 60% of these folks, you know, over 60,000 of them were actual American citizens. I mean, just as an American citizen as you, me, anybody else who was born in this country, 
and had done nothing wrong, had shown nothing other than, you know, their their birth as, you know, to Japanese parents. And they had the face of the enemy. And we were at war with Japan. And there was a lot of prejudice at the time there. Um, and uh, to round them up and get them in into the camps. And, and Roosevelt signed his executive order, uh, was convinced by the military people that this was something that had to be done. Uh, it was a, um, you know, right after Pearl Harbor, there were fears that the Japanese might even invade the West Coast of the United States, uh, which of course is not anything they ever did or was ever in their war plans, but we didn't know that until after the war. Um, and so, you know, he, he signed this order and, and these folks went into those camps. And again, a number of my characters in the book, I point out were in those camps before they were in the army fighting for this country. And I thought, boy, that was, that was really something, you know, for them. I mean, they, they stepped up and they were, they were, um, proud and ready, uh, to fight for their country, even though their country had put them and their families, uh, uh, behind Bob Warr. For my listeners, how were some of these men, uh, recruited? What, what do we know about the conversations that took place, uh, when these men were recruited? Um, I know you have, uh, the story of, uh, Private Komodo, you know, that that's one interesting story we could get into and how he was recruited. Uh, but maybe just a broad overview of um, how these men were recruited into this. Well, it, it varied from person to person. For example, one of my characters, uh, in fact, more than one, but Tom Sakamoto, for example, uh, this country did have a draft a year before Pearl Harbor, you know, it was then a peacetime draft. And uh, he had been drafted and, and was in the army um, when the war broke out. And so that was, you know, uh, some of these fellows who were sent to the six month military intelligence language school were already in the ranks, you know, of the army and were recruited, uh, brought out of, in other words, one of them was even working as a, as an army mechanic and um, they, you know, the recruiters for the um, language school went to the different bases and camps and found these these um, these guys and, and told them they were needed uh, another in another capacity. Uh, there's there's their language skills were were required by the army and and they were sent off, uh, you know, into the uh, military intelligence program uh, language school at that point. Uh, others uh, were. Um, you know, some of the other characters were like any other, a number other Americans who, you know, were civilians at the time of the Pearl Harbor attack and went down to their recruiter to sign up. Uh, and um, and then when they got into the army, um, they were identified as, you know, having this, this language skill. And they ended up in the language uh, school, the military intelligence school. And again, the there were the the, the fellows who were rounded up with their families, and uh, Ray Matsumoto being one of my characters who was born in California and was living in L.A. at the time the war broke out. He had gone to school uh, as a young as a young boy, though in Japan for a number of years, and then had come back home, 
And uh, so anyway, he was rounded up and put into and put into an internment camp in Arizona. And uh, he was among the first, um, I think he was with 10 or 12 of the young men in that camp who were actually recruited. Recruiters came into the camp and signed and gave him the oath of, um, you know, of, of allegiance. And and they swore him into the army right there. And um, um, so he was he was happy to, to, to do that. I mean, he was irritated that he was in camp and not and not serving in the army anyway. He was a very patriotic guy. But it was also a motivation to get out of the camp. He'd much rather be in the army um, than in the camp. And so, um, you know, they they got into the program like that. So, as I say, there were any number of ways. But they were all identified for uh, their skills. In, in, uh, in other words, you can't become fluent in Japanese if you've never spoken it or read it or written anything uh, within six months. So the 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 army was looking for was looking for these individuals who were already fluent in the language, and then in those six months they would teach them the military stuff they needed to know not only about the the terms of you know various things in the American military ar- uh, army in the American army but also in the Japanese army. Uh, uh, and uh, about weapons and about tactics and about strategy. Also things like what you could do and couldn't do with a prisoner of war. Um, and uh, so they had to, you know, learn those things, but uh, they knew the language going in. So I'd, I'd mentioned uh, one of the uh, characters you talk a little bit about in the book is, um, and I don't want to mispronounce his name, but um, I think it's Kazo Komodo. Yeah. Could you speak a little bit about him? Yeah, he um he was born in California and uh um he was, you know, re- uh, but he had again spent uh a few years uh go- going to school in Japan as a boy and uh and then came back to uh uh to California and was living on a farm uh and helping his father farm uh when when the war broke out and uh he has several distinctions. Uh, he was uh, actually in the first the first class that was graduated from this MI, uh, military intelligence language school and uh, sent over to the Pacific very early in the war and in fact uh, took part in an invasion in the Solomon Islands and uh, had the, the, the distinction of being the first um, Nisei wounded uh, in World War II, uh, because the uh, fellows who went over into Europe had not were not over there yet, not fighting. So he was really the first to to get wounded in combat. He was shot in the knee, and um, he was uh, actually in a hospital in Fiji um, when Eleanor Roosevelt came through on a tour and uh, was 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 touring military hospitals. Uh, in the Pacific and and literally meeting, you know, and greeting thousands of wounded soldiers. And uh, when she walked into his uh, hospital ward and uh, was met him, um, and I have a wonderful picture of it in the book. I couldn't believe it when we found a, a picture, but there was, of course, quite a bit of photo- uh, photographic coverage of Mrs. Roosevelt on this tour. So we did find it of 
And there's this beautiful, you know, big uh, beaming uh, smile that, that Komodo had in in greeting her, and he 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 said that she spoke to him like 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 a mother, you know, are you all right? How do you feel? Is there anything I can you know um, I can do for you? I mean that kind of thing. And um, he uh, uh, Kazu Komodo, by all accounts, in fact, I did meet him shortly before he died. He was one of one of my um, characters who I was able to interview. Um, and uh, he, he, he was a very humble, generally very quiet guy. And yet he, he decided that he needed to take this opportunity to tell Mrs. Roosevelt how he felt. And he said, you know, um, I am out here uh, getting shot at and my family is behind Bob wire in the desert in Arizona. And that's a raw deal. And um, she, you know, she looked at him and said, yes, well, I want you to know they're being well taken care of. She had actually visited a couple of the internment camps. And, um, and, um, and she's, you know, and he, and she said, I will, you know, tell the president your, how you feel. And <laughs> if the president didn't already know, I guess. And uh, later, you know, Komodo thought, you know, was felt guilty that he had that he had um, challenged, you know, the president's wife like that. But he just felt he needed to to get it off, you know, his chest. He really just wanted her to know how he felt. Anyway, he ends up in a hospital in California for thirty days, recovering from his wound. And when he gets out, he's given leave to go down and visit his family in Arizona at the camp. And so he takes a train and then he's on a bus and he gets off like one town short of the camp and he decides he's going to do some uh, um, grocery shopping because he understood that, you know, he'd heard that they, they didn't have a lot of fresh meat in the camps and whatnot. So he goes into this little grocery and goes to the back of the store where the butcher is and and uh, he's, you know, looking at, at, at the various cuts and he starts ordering and saying what he'd like to have. And the butcher looks over at him and says, we don't sell to no Japs here. And Komodo, who was in his army uniform, um, said, I'm, I'm not a Jap, I'm an American. And the butcher said, well, I'm an American too. And Komodo said, yes, but I'm in uniform and you're not. And it was like the butcher maybe looked at him for the first time in a way, saw him in the uniform, saw his battle ribbons and said, all right, what is it you want? And he ended up selling him this, this meat, and which Komodo took into the camp. But again, this was, you know, this was what they faced. Um, here is a wounded vet, you know, coming directly out of the war and getting this kind of, this kind of uh, reception at home. In terms of their acts of bravery while serving, are there any specific stories that stand out for you that maybe uh, would give readers a taste of the courage that these men had. Well, first of all, it, it, you know, I think it should be pointed out that these these guys, the Japanese Americans who fought in Europe against the Germans, could could not be um, mistaken for the enemy at all. Uh, our Japanese American troops who went to the Pacific had the face of the enemy. And they could certainly be mistaken for the enemy, friendly fire, as it's called. Um, one of my characters, for example, Nabu Fure, was with the Marines at Iwo Jima. And 
he was right there right after the you know i mean the, at the the second or third wave and was on the beach on the sands of iwo jima doing trying to translate some of these captured enemy documents that they, they had been already been found and, and uh um and the word went out uh that the some of the japanese soldiers were stripping the uh, bodies of the dead marines and putting on their uniforms to infiltrate into the american lines and therefore uh any any of the marines who who saw a japanese in a marine uniform should go ahead and shoot them and of course here's nabu here's nabu you know, uh, in a Marine uniform on the sands, you know, doing his doing his job. So when I when I think of that, how it, it's one, you know, it's dangerous enough being in a war and potentially being shot by the enemy. But then you've also compound that with being mistaken for the enemy and being shot by your own some of your own troops. I mean, that I, I can't I can't even imagine how um how that how how you know how fearful that must have made them and what courage it took to just do your job and to just keep your head down and do your job they were actually starting to assign uh, a security guard to each of the japanese americans who were taking part in these uh assaults um, just for that specific reason uh to make sure that you know if they come across a group of gi's who didn't know who they were that they weren't going to be Shot now. There are were instances in the war, certainly, and I I mentioned uh, them of of some of our Japanese American troops being shot by other Americans accidentally. Um, and uh, no real though. Uh, one thing I wanted to look at was whether there was any really overt um, prejudice or discrimination once they got in the army. You know, coming from other GIs, and and the, the answer really was no. Um, and and one of my characters was was ended up being assigned to a um, an infantry division that had been a activated Texas um, uh, National Guard unit. And some of these fellows from Texas had never seen any Japanese person before. And um, but they quickly uh, realized uh, the, the other GIs did. That that these interpreters and translators were 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 real valuable, and not only were they going to get information about the enemy that could potentially help help them, you know, win uh, battles, but but also save American lives. So they they got to be very appreciated by by their fellow American soldiers. If you could, they were deployed in. Uh... A number of places, including the jungles of New Georgia, the caves of Okinawa, and they they even worked with um, Miro's Marauders. Could you talk a little bit about? Well, let, let's start with um, Miro's Marauders and and the work they did with them. Well, first of all, the, these language teams, these military intelligence teams, these ten man uh, uh, Nisei teams. They were everywhere in the Pacific. I mean, you you name a, an invasion or you name a campaign, and they were there. I mean, they were assigned to uh, uh, even down to battalion, but certainly uh, regiment and uh, division, and then of course upwards uh, to army and and corps headquarters. MacArthur, for example, had four hundred uh, Japanese American uh, interpreters with him in Australia. Uh, they were getting uh, a lot of documents being sent down there off the uh, 
battlefields. And there really are two types of intelligence, if I could uh, do an aside here. One is tactical intelligence, and that would be what would be a value um, on the battlefield. In other words, uh, where is that minefield? Uh, where are the enemy? Where are the enemy? Does the enemy have any uh, tanks here? And if so, where are they? That was that kind of tactical information that there is a need to know it very, very quickly uh, and very immediately because you know it's it's in your face kind of thing. Uh, so to get that information, these these interpreters had to be up front, up close to the battle lines, um, to the front lines. And same with interrogating prisoners. Anytime you get an enemy prisoner to interrogate, you want to do it quickly. Uh, if you wait and do it a week from now, what are you going to learn? Well, you might learn something that won't help you anymore. Uh, and you also want to want to interrogate them when they're when they're at their most vulnerable, when they're hungry, scared, whatever. And so you you want to get what you can out of them at that point. And then there's the strategic intelligence, which is the more big campaign. Uh, uh, for example, is the ja are the Japanese planning to reinforce uh, Guadalcanal in the next month? Um, that kind of stuff that you know our generals need to know, uh, and that was the kind of material that was being sent down to Australia with Magar uh, to MacArthur's headquarters that was being interpreted by his uh, by his teams uh, down there. But so you know, again, it was a matter of these teams. For example, you mentioned Merrill's Marauders. There was uh, a 10, 12 man team of Nisei that was assigned to this uh, three thousand man. Merrill's Marauders uh, group that fought in in Burma, and um, two of my characters were with Merrill's Marauders, and that was a particularly um, horrific setting to fight in. That kind of jungle and 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 mountains and heat and humidity, and uh, often you couldn't see more than six feet in front of you. And um, so one of one of my characters, uh, Roy Matsumoto. Uh, at at one point, they're they're stopped uh, in in the jungle, on a, and and he looks up and sees a um, a, a line, a, looks like a phone line, uh, high up in the trees, and he he goes up in the tree and taps into it, um, and it's 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 the Japanese talking, um, yeah, amongst themselves. So he he's up there for several hours listening to their conversation, and it. In the course of that, he finds out that they're worried about reinforcing a big ammunition um, uh, uh, dump that um, only has two or three men right now guarding it. So they send out the coordinates on where it is and that we should reinforce it. Well, he writes the coordinates down and then comes down and, and they send that in. And um, it's uh, uh, the next morning, there's a single airplane flying over you know and drops a bomb and uh one bomb and it blows up this ammunition dump so that's the kind of thing i mean if he hadn't been there if he didn't know japanese you know he wouldn't have known that and uh, a lot of ammunition it could have and would have killed americans was um um was was um, destroyed yeah i was gonna say i mean that's one example in this book of um you know, how harrowing a lot of these tills are. I mean, you know, a lot was on the line 
for these men. Yeah. Um, and, and again, they were, they were there. I mean, they were, they were fighting. Uh, they were trained infantrymen as well. Uh, certainly in Burma, there was no such thing as a non-combatant. Uh, you know, Roy carried a, uh, a carbine and, uh, he took part in uh, in some you know some terrible fighting, and in fact uh, ended up being credited with with saving his battalion, which had been encircled on a mountaintop for several days, and uh, um, the reinforcements were still a ways off, a couple of several days off, and uh, he crawled uh, at nighttime through the bush and got close enough to the Japanese lines. Um, to overhear their plans and where they were going to attack the next morning and how they were going to do it. And he came back through, uh, um, back through the, you know, to the American lines and gave them, gave them that information. And they were able to set up and counter this attack in the morning. And in fact, when it, when the Japanese uh, troops began coming up the mountain, right where the Americans knew they would, and they had their firing lines all set up and were really basically mowing these um, the enemy down. Uh, there was a second wave of enemy troops that that hesitated, you know, seeing what was happening to their the, the guys in front of them. And so Roy, from his foxhole up and up on the top of the hill, starts you know yelling in Japanese uh, orders that the Japanese uh, that a Japanese officer would order to the men to charge, charge, and 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 did it. Uh, in a way that made it sound like uh, it was it was orders that they were getting. So the second wave came up, and then they were they were subsequently mowed down as well. So, you know, it turned out that when when it was over, there was something like close to a hundred you know dead enemy soldiers on the field, and not a single American uh, was killed. And that was all again because of the kind of intelligence that Roy got through, you know, being able to understand the language. Yeah, it's interesting. I I was hoping that we could get more into maybe the the challenges faced by these men that were involved with um, doing translations and interrogations. Uh, there's a lot of talk about interrogations throughout the book, so may, maybe you could talk about that, the interrogation of POWs and whatnot, and the role these men played in that. Well, first of all, uh, in some of these campaigns, you know that we weren't taking many Japanese prisoners. Um, the Japanese army told their their own soldiers, "You will not be captured. Uh, you will not allow it. Death is is preferable." Um, and so they weren't they weren't taught anything at all about how to how to act if they would, did become prisoners. In other words, they didn't know about the Geneva Convention that if they were prisoner, they only have to give their name, rank, and and service number. Um, uh, they did not know that, and uh, um, so a lot of in a lot of these campaigns, these Japanese soldiers, even the ones that seemed to want to give up, were you know ordered by their officers not to, and and were uh, subject to mass suicide kind of things. Um, so it was a bit of a surprise to to the American army that we weren't taking more prisoners, but um, they just weren't. They, they just weren't, uh, you know, um, um, they weren't giving themselves up. And so the language teams were doing mostly, uh, working mostly with the documents that were being, um, that were being um, brought back from the, from the battlefields and that they could read uh, 
uh, and get information from. But then when we started a bit later in the war, actually getting more Japanese prisoners, and that did happen, um, well, our guys were taught that, first of all, you don't harm a prisoner. And, you know, and lately we have in rather recent years come up with this, what's called enhanced interrogation stuff, which, you know, the CIA did, which is basically torture somebody to get information. Right, the waterboarding and, and things like that during the war on terror, yeah. Right. Um, but, you know, that is not how you get uh, good information out of anybody. If, if you know, if you're being hurt, really badly hurt, uh, uh, you'll tell somebody just about anything, even if you don't know it, <laughs> to get them to stop. So you get a lot of false information that way. You just get a lot of people who just desperate want to be, don't want to be hurt anymore. Um, so they were taught a lot of techniques for um, interrogation. Um, they were taught to, for example, um, to find something of common interest. Uh, and, and it could be, you know, playing, uh, a sport, soccer, uh, it could be uh, fishing, it could be farming, uh, you know, also you find, uh, you know, you help them, you give them a cigarette, you, if they, if they need, if they need a bandage, if they need some, some medical help, you do that, you, you, you show that you're, you know, you, we are, and Americans were generally, you know, kind to their, to their, um, um, to their prisoners, um, uh, and uh, so that, you know, uh, these interrogators uh, really, really use that. And they also found, though, that, um, uh, you know, that they would make they would tell the 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 prisoner of, of war, look, don't worry, you know, we'll you'll put your name on a on a, a list to the Red Cross and your family back in Japan will know that you're alive and, you know, that you're you know, that you're a prisoner, but you're all right, you're alive. And almost to a man, uh, these Japanese prisoners would say, no, don't do that. Don't put my name on the Red Cross list. My family cannot know I'm a prisoner. I I can never return to my family again after I've been captured. So there was a real shame that was associated with being with being captured. And again, that was that was drilled into them, you know, early on by their own training. Um um, so that, you know, but, uh, our guys are, are, are interrogators. I, and it was, by the way, a, a, a complete shock to the Japanese prisoners to see this, uh, other, you know, this Japanese, uh, face in an American uniform. And they had no idea. They had no idea that we had Japanese in our army and they were really stunned. And then of course, when they could talk fluently, uh, in their own language, it really it really threw them off. But there was a you know our guys were able to connect with them in a way that say a a Caucasian guy who could who could speak the language probably couldn't. How would you assess the importance of the role these Japanese Americans played in in the Pacific and World War II? What what would you say to people that maybe don't know as much about this story? How how would you emphasize the importance of their role? In the war, well, I, I think I can quantify it by saying this: the army did a post-war survey of these um, of these military intelligence language teams in in Europe. In other words, the the German language uh, teams 
uh, that were taught at, you know, a different school, um, but the same, taught the same thing, same kind of techniques about interrogation and whatnot. And they were able to find that there's something on the order of 55, 58% of the actionable intelligence gathered in the European theater of war came from these teams of military intelligence language people. And uh, no similar uh, post-war study was done in the Pacific, um, but I am confident that um, that if it were, uh, that that a similar number would have would have come up. Uh, I think probably more than half of the actionable intelligence um, uh, that was got that we got from from human uh, human intelligence, human resource um, uh, sources. Uh, captured, you know, enemy uh, troops as well as the documentation um, uh, and uh, papers and and uh, battle plans and things like that of the enemy that we ended up. I'm sure that 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 came from these these um, these teams of these Japanese Americans. Going back to something you said earlier, uh, you said that in a way these men were fighting two wars simultaneously. They're fighting overseas, but they're also facing a war at home against uh, racial prejudice. Maybe you could elaborate on just how they were able to deal with the prejudice at home while also just being so loyal to their country, uh, um, which was America. Well, they did. I mean, they, the fact is they did it. They they volunteered for the army when the recruiters came in the camp and uh, uh, they 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 did it um, not that they were uh, approving or accepting uh, you know that their families were being in these camps or forgetting that their families were in these camps and there was a lot of there was a lot of bitterness about that I've read some of the letters that these um, that these Japanese American uh, uh, fellows wrote home um, and they were very concerned about their families. Uh, and uh, but also understanding that first things first, and in fact, their families in the camps uh, would would send them off uh, with their support, you know, into the war to the army. And I, one of my characters, the last thing his mother uh, said to him um, when he got on the bus in this in the camp after, you know, taking the oath uh, to um, of uh, enlistment into the army. Uh, she she held him and, and said, make us proud. And so the families were there, but they were willing to give up their sons in in the fight, um, in America's fight uh, against our, our enemies. And uh, even though America, you know, had had put them into into an internment camp. So whether it's the young men themselves or their families, there was uh, an just a tremendous amount of of um support you know to 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 win the war and to to get that done to get that over with and i feel like the uh you know it's it's an opportune time for a book like bridge to the sun to come out because uh i think you know we we are living um uh sadly there's a lot of anti-immigrant sentiments uh, that are still prevalent 
today. And, you know, we're in America that too often prejudges people based on race, ethnicity, countries of origin. And I and I think this these kind of timeless messages of of courage and true patriotism should should not be forgotten. And, I, and I'm glad, I, I guess I should have worded my question better earlier because that was the aspect that interested me because I, I'm sure there was bitterness about just having family members in uh, these internment camps, but also, you know, they, they, they felt as Americans that they had a duty um, to serve. So I, I think that's um, just endlessly fascinating that they're dealing with all of these things at once, essentially. And um it, it is an act of courage on their part. And the fact that they're they're not just they're not fighting, say, the Germans in, in Europe. Uh the fact that they're having to go uh, and fight against Japan. And again, all of these guys in my book, all six of them, and again, what had made them most valuable to the army was that they had gone to school for a few years in Japan. But and that means that they knew the relatives there. Uh, they had friends, they had schoolmates there, and uh, they had cousins. They they in some had brothers. In fact, some of these fellows had brothers who were still over in Japan, um, going to school there, who were younger. And uh, at the time that you know Pearl Harbor happened, and which meant they didn't get back to America. Um, and they they some in some cases those brothers were were drafted into the Japanese army. And so these guys, you know, going into the Pacific knew that there could come a day when they would be fighting a, a cousin, a brother, a classmate. Um, and that was another that was another layer of um, what commitment uh, and and certainly. Um, uh, but they were there and they were ready to prepared to do their duty and. I know one of them said that had had voiced that he um, he was glad that the family, though, his family in Japan, uh, he felt that, you know, they they were living not near Tokyo, which he figured would be bombed during the war. But they were living in a a small uh, a smaller town on on the coast south of of Tokyo and, and that they would be okay. Well. That that town was called Hiroshima. If we could, before we close out, uh, I really enjoyed the afterword of your book uh, by Gerald Yamada, uh, who is the president of the Japanese American Veterans Association. Maybe you could talk about uh, Gerald Yamada and the role the Japanese American Veterans Association played in the book, because I, I believe Java actually um, helped out with the book in a few ways. Yeah, Java did. They were uh, they had a, a couple of researchers work really for over a year. Volunteer researchers. Uh, I had expressed the uh, interest in uh, having in the book uh, a list, a roster, if you will, of all of the uh, uh, some three thousand uh, Japanese American soldiers who served in the Pacific. Interestingly enough, this was not ever a roster or list put together by the army. And in order to to do this list, I was told early on, one would have to laboriously go through the files of the language school as to those that graduated and have their names. 
and then go to the military records to see where each and each one of them served. And again, I wanted the ones that were in the Pacific because that was the story I was writing about. And um, so that was a massive undertaking that I couldn't do uh, while I was researching everything else in the book, but that that Java took on for me, and they 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 thought it was a, a really um, you know would be a valuable thing, and as did I for the families of of these men to be able to look up the names of uh, you know their father, grandfather, uncle uh, who had served, and so in the end when we had this list, uh, you know, and I and I turned it in with my manuscript, you know, my, my publishing, my publisher said, well, this is really, this is going to come to 30, over 30 pages in the book. And for publishers, of course, pages mean money, right? It, the longer a book, the more expensive it is to, to, to print and to, of course, ship and it gets heavier and all of that. And I, I just, I just said, yeah, but it's, it's really important. It's, it's, it, it makes this book uh, you know, something historical that'll be around for a long time. I mean, I hope and I want it to be a really good read and I want it, and I think it does, it's a narrative nonfiction, which means it's, you know, reads like a novel and, and, and although everything is true and it, 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 it's, it's uh, not just filled with dry facts, but as a dramatic page turner, but I want the list of these guys that served and we got it. And it's in the book. I have Java to thank for that. I did ask uh, Gerald Yamada to, if he would do an afterward, and he does a very personal note about his his own family. And it's very you know, moving that afterward. I, I very much felt that that was a great way to cap off the book. Yes, and about you know the fact that you know his family were in an internment camp, and uh, Gerald was was too young to have been in World War II, but. Uh, his um, mother had a miscarriage in, in the camp that, you know, they think happened as a result of the conditions in the camp. And so he's very, you know, and that's a very personal, and I'm glad you point that out. I'm glad you, uh, I, I thought it was very, very, very moving too. Um, but, and the result of having the names of all of these guys in my book, I can't tell you, I've already, even though the book's only been out a month, have heard from family members. You know, I get emails through my website, which, by the way, if I may say, it's BruceHendersonBooks.com. Um, and uh, I get emails through there from people who have read the book and found, oh, my gosh, they found their father. <laughs> they found their grandfather. And they, um, and they had no idea that he had done this or they had no idea. They knew he'd gone to the school, but had no idea what some of the duties were of these guys. And so I'm really that that that's an extra to me. That's um, an extra level of, of, you know, satisfaction for me as the author that I'm able to bring these stories, um, you know, to circle back around to the families. I just wanted to ask if, if you have time uh, in researching the book, uh, I, I always like talking about uh the, the experience uh, that an author has while researching for a book like this. So do, do you have any personal experiences during your research for this book, um, talking to the families, uh, working in archives that you think um, maybe illustrate that experience of, of research? What was, especially what was talking to some of the families like? Well, talking to the families, I, I guess is well. You know, it's my favorite part is to connecting with, connecting with 
the the characters in the book and if and if they aren't alive as i say most most of these fellows weren't then you know the families who you know obviously knew them uh become really valuable um because they it's it's not just a, i don't just write about you know military resumes uh you know where they were what they did in certain periods of time I want to know. I want. I call it fleshing, fleshing out the characters. I want to know what they were thinking and feeling and fearing and loving and and so you know I try to get as much of that as I can from from the families, and at the same time, you know that has to be part of and dovetail with the hard, the really the hard research. The, and I say hard. I mean that means more of the um, uh, official. Uh, files and documents in in the archives, uh, and uh, as to you know unit histories and uh, um, uh, descriptions of of battles and that kind of thing. Um, so uh, and for me, I might point out <clears throat> about half of my time on a project is research. I think I mentioned that, but to me, that's the fun part. Honestly, is the research. Uh, and I guess maybe because I'm, you know, an old newspaper reporter, I love, I love digging in. I love getting details. I love um, learning things about people and events. And then when it's time to write, you know, that's that's the hard part. Um, writing, often writing is, uh, uh, it, you know, it's it's not as much fun as finding out the uh, the information initially. Well, Bruce Henderson, I want to thank you again for coming on Parallax Views to discuss Bridge to the Sun, the secret role of the Japanese Americans who fought in the Pacific in World War II. I think it's a really fascinating read. I think it gives a great insight into the stories of these Japanese Americans who were dealing with uh, just so many issues. I mean, they're fighting a war. uh, They're worried about family at home. There's so many stakes involved. Uh, throughout their their journeys. And I think you really bring that out. And, you know, it, it's just a fascinating and in, in a way uplifting, I would say, story. The, these are men who served. Uh, there were no real betrayals or anything of that nature. And it, it's a story about, I, I think, bravery, courage, and also one that maybe can teach us how we can overcome um, a lot of our prejudices in society today. That's good to hear. Thank you for having me, JG. I appreciate it. Well, that does it for this edition of Parallax Views. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Bruce Henderson and that you'll check out his new book, Bridge to the Sun, The Secret Role of the Japanese Americans Who Fought in the Pacific in World War II. As always, if you appreciate the work here I do at Parallax Views, please, please, please consider supporting me on Patreon at patreon.com slash parallaxviews. One more time, that's patreon.com slash parallaxviews. And with that being said, until next time, you've been listening to Parallax Views with Parallax Views to Parallax Views with The way out is not simply to say, don't do it. 
that to prohibit. If nothing else, if we don't do it, others will be doing it like crazy. So, you know, we have to confront the problem. But no, basically, basically, I'm, I know of the great anxiety problems, new forms of control, but it's also new forms of freedom. This is why I always emphasize that uh, uh, internet and all this new digital stuff, it's a very ambiguous phenomenon, but it's the field of struggle. New forms of enslavement, but at the same time, new incredible forms of freedom. We have to accept the fight with no nostalgia for old, allegedly more authentic communities or whatever. I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid.